Hi, my name is Claire and I'm the mother of three teenagers with FESD. I'm Jessica, a PhD researcher specialising in educational interventions for children with FASD. And together we are the hosts of Spotlight on FASD, the UK's first podcast dedicated to shining a spotlight on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. FASD is a condition caused by prenatal alcohol exposure that affects hundreds of thousands of children across the UK. And we're here to bring these conversations out of the shadows and make sure that no one living with FASD feels alone. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Spotlight on FASD. We are continuing our mini-series on criminal justice with Jared Brown. Hi Jared. Good afternoon, morning, evening, whoever you're watching in at whatever time. Glad to be back. Yeah, whatever time it is. Um, yeah, this week we are going to be talking about vulnerability and victimization and how that connects with FASD, how it connects with the criminal justice system and really just discuss a lot of the issues that are raised uh, when FASD is not understood in these kind of scenarios. So over to you Jared. You bet. Thanks again for having me back. Thank you everyone for tuning in and again really going to look at this through the lens of just vulnerability and victimization. Hopefully provide all of you with just some general information, ideas, tips to consider as to why unfortunately so many people with FASD seem to be more prone to be vulnerable and unfortunately a higher level of vulnerability can then trickle down into actual victimization. Could be criminal victimization. It could be financial victimization. I've consulted on cases where someone with FASD gave away money online to strangers. So vulnerability and victimization can happen in many different forms. So social media, access to the internet, really got to be aware of that topic as well. We know that people with FASD, not a, not 100% of the time, but kind of as a whole, have a tendency to be more naive or gullible. Mm -hmm. They have a tendency to have more of an immature, childlike mindset in a lot of cases. So again, their chronological age doesn't always line up with their emotional and developmental age. Their emotional and developmental age is typically lower than their chronological age. So one tip is to not really look through the lens of how old they are chronologically, but how do they function emotionally? behaviorally and cognitively, when you can look through that lens, you will be probably in a better position to implement strategies, supports, services. You will modify your language you use, the vocabulary you use. You'll probably be in more of a tendency to fact check and verify, which is all very, very important when working with folks with FASD. We know people with FASD as a whole, have more of a tendency to be impulsive, deal with some self-regulation issues, and can be overly emotional at times that don't always match up to the situation at hand. Anxiety is a very common co-occurring disorder in this population. Low stress tolerance, being more hyperactive, where they can look like they have ADHD or they do have ADHD, are definitely some of the variables we want to take into account. Other variables I think are really important to be aware of when we look through the lens of vulnerability and victimization is, again, those executive functioning impairments, hallmark deficit of FASD. Executive function is the CEO or the boss of the brain. Mm -hmm. And when 
executive functioning impairments are at play, that can impact day-to-day -day functioning. It can impact the way in which that person can plan and organize and manage time. It can have a real impact on decision-making and problem-solving abilities. There's three big components that fall under the umbrella of executive function. Inhibition, which is our internal parking brake, which relates to like self-control and pausing and reflecting. There's something called cognitive flexibility. Are we more adaptable? Can we go with the flow? Are we shiftable? Can we kind of navigate things more successfully? And then working memory, that's our brain's post-it note. Research is very clear. People that FASD have problems with all of those areas, typically. When we think of vulnerability too, what happens if the person has a slower information processing speed style where they just have a real difficult time taking in information, processing it, and making sense of the world around them? That can contribute to confusion. Mm -hmm. You know, some people can be very inflexible in their thinking. They can lack that cause and effect understanding stranger danger, understanding how past mistakes and learning from them and applying it to different situations. All of these things could place the individual at greater risk for vulnerability and victimization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, this, this entire topic I just keep coming back to the thought of the internet and, and, and social media and how, well, the easiest way to avoid all this entirely is to, to block access and not just not have any um, presence on social media. But that's not, you know, that, that's not the way to, to move forward with this. And so how, you know, how do we... How can we advise people? How can we offer guidance? How can we offer anything at all on um, protecting individuals on online, on, on social media, and raising awareness and educating around the vulnerability of others? Yeah. Because even on the smallest levels, you know, even if we're talking about 10-year-olds at school, no, it it starts as quite meaningless, um, playful, what we call banter back and forth. It very quickly escalates to bullying, and and then you know you you take that behind the scenes where you you have that disconnect because everything plays out online, and all of a sudden it can become very very vicious and manipulative, and those who are vulnerable are targeted. It's an area that I'm putting most of my attention into right now is related to screen time misuse and addiction with people with FASD, people with autism, ADHD. It's one of the number one reasons why I get contacted now by caregivers. Really? Around the, yeah, it creates such a dilemma. Yeah. Like it's so confusing. It's so stressful. Yeah. Lots of terrible stories I've heard vulnerability, victimization, but I've also heard plenty of stories where someone with FASD is in a chat room sharing images of themselves mm -hmm. with someone they think who's 18 and later find out they're underage. I mean, there's a whole can of worms with that, obviously legal. What do we do about this? Really understanding 
the person who you're working with, or if it's a child or adult, their emotional, mm-hmm. intellectual, and their behavioral maturity. First of all, like again, where do they function? Working with a provider, maybe it's working with a neuropsychologist, getting testing, finding out which domains of functioning are working, which domains are not working as well. If you have a child who functions a lot lower than their chronological age, matching again their level of kind of their access to social media. Now, if you had a child who's 10 years old, you're probably not going to give them access to social media without having some boundaries and fences in place. You have to have boundaries and fences. The research is clear on this in general with social media or just screen time use. Get technology out of the child's bedroom. That's not good. First of all, there's a design, maybe there's a designated place in the home. We can't escape the use of social media and just technology nowadays. We need it for work, we need it for school, we need it for learning, all that. In the era of COVID-19, it's really amplified these issues. One thing I'll say, there is tons and tons of research on internet addiction, screen time addiction in general, quite a bit on autism, quite a bit on ADHD, virtually almost nothing for FASD, which shocks me. It is a real issue. Screen time misuse can turn into an addiction. It has absolute addictive tendencies. We need to be aware of that too. And in general, let's say if somebody has a tendency to misuse the screen, we need to be aware of their vulnerability and victimization proneness, but also how that impacts them emotionally, socially, and physically. Someone who's on the screen for excessive hours of day, that can impact their learning, their attention, the way in which they process emotions. It can have a negative impact on physical health. There's plenty of research to show if you're looking at the screen day in and day out for extended periods of time, that can contribute to headaches, back pain, joint pain, digestive health issues, low-grade inflammation, sleep issues. All of those factors can just exacerbate primary and secondary symptoms of FASD. And if you want, maybe in the future, I mean, this is a a segment in and of itself, just the vulnerability of just going online. I mean, again, that's a very important component to this. One segment of vulnerability and victimization, but we also have to be aware of the other segments and how in some cases, someone with FASD could be the victim of a crime, but now they're unknowingly doing things that place them at risk for coming into contact with the criminal justice system because of their lower levels of maturity, the gullibility, the naivete, the higher likelihood to be suggestible, the greater likelihood to confabulate and create a false memory, compliance where they just wanna go along with other people. They're easily talked into doing things. Maybe they're the scapegoat in situations. All of those factors can contribute to vulnerability and victimization on a wide scale level, unfortunately. Yeah. So it's, it's it's really hard, isn't it? It is. It is really hard. Yes, um, I'm just I'm just trying to process what you were saying there because it's it's so there's a lot to take in. There's a lot of very lot of moving parts here. Yeah. Yeah. When I talk on this, it's overwhelm it's overwhelming to hear all these moving parts, but 
I guess what I would do if I'm new to this world, I'm a caregiver and all these terms are just new and overwhelming, maybe look at it through the lens of social intelligence. Mm -hmm. Stud study social intelligence because if someone has lower levels of social intelligence, social immaturity, social unawareness, what is their awareness of others in social situations? Not just in person, but online. How do they communicate during social situations? In our other segment, we talked about language. It's that pragmatic social language. How do they use language in social situations? Do they know how to change the way in which they talk to a child versus an adult versus a stranger versus someone they know very well? Do they know how to start the conversation, end a conversation? Do they know when that other person may not want to talk to them? Again, limitations in that social realm oftentimes drive the bus with this population for coming into contact with the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Perspective taking deficits, very common, and that would fall under the umbrella of social intelligence. We know from the literature that people with FASD are more likely to have theory of mind deficits, where they have a hard time with perspective taking, understanding the thoughts, wants, needs, emotions, intentions of other people. It kind of relates to mind reading. There's some elements of empathy wrapped up in there, but people with lower levels of social intelligence, perspective taking, theory of mind, may be more likely to be bullied and teased. They may be more likely to be excluded from groups. They may be more likely to just really stick out in a crowd that this person may be a little more gullible. Hey, let's take advantage of that person. So very, very important to focus on social intelligence, social emotional processing, building up perspective taking abilities. And part of social intelligence too, is cooperation skills, turn-taking abilities, choice-making, how do we use humor appropriately? All of those issues are quite common for people with FASD as a whole. And would quite often highlight them as being particularly vulnerable as well to others. Absolutely. Especially those who are more, I don't want to say seeking, but more prone to taking advantage of uh, those who are more vulnerable. Um, yeah. And, you know, I I was thinking about what you were saying, um, you know, if if you had a 10 year old, so if you had an 18 year old, for example, who uh, was functioning um, at, at the level of a 10 year old, you wouldn't let them on social media without uh, barriers in place and safety precautions and different things. But and I'm not sure how much access a 10 year old would get to social media in with with those things in place and how many different platforms they would be exploring because you have to consider their peer group at that, you know, a, a 10 year old, I don't know actually, but are 10 year olds um, playing a particular game online and all their peers are playing the same game and they're not particularly open to the larger um, crowds that perhaps like Facebook or Twitter or something much more mainstream and um, that adults would be using. So, but if your if your child is eighteen and their their peer group are, are using much more advanced social media platforms and they're not just playing a little online game um, or something like like you know how can you manage that? It's you, they're managing what peer relationships they do have and 
those peer relationships, I assume, in, in many situations are very, very precious to them because we know of the, the social interaction challenges um, that people with FASD often have. And so their, their peer groups um, are, are probably quite small to begin with. So you want to make sure that they can react, they interact with them. You want to make sure that they can go online and play games with them. But are they safe doing that? Are, you know, do you know their friends or have they made friends online? And then how do you explore that? It's, this is, all I'm doing is asking questions here because I like there's just, I can't even think of any suggestions to support caregivers in this scenario. This is, this is one that I actually fear my own children when they get into the age of. <laughs> As caregivers, form a bubble, form a shield with other caregivers and maybe practicing modeling those behaviors with a group of people. Mm. I honestly think no good can come out from someone with FASD joining a chat group of all strangers who don't have FASD that they've never met before. No. Not, not mm. good. Things. One thing caregivers can do is model the use of technology appropriately to their kids. That's one tip that always is talked about in the literature. What is your, how do you use social media? How do you use your phone? How do you use the computer in front of your children or adults? Are you sitting down and having dinner together and everyone's on the gadget? Does everyone have technology in the bedroom? Is there any rules in the household about technology? Forming technology use rules, modeling those behaviors, putting some fences and boundaries in place. Sometimes when I work with uh, caregivers, we'll talk about a technology detox day where one day a week, everybody in the house is going to be off technology and hanging out and talking and playing games or doing something other than watching a movie, on their screen, looking at videos online. For some people, I've consulted with some caregivers too who have adults with FASD, who let's say they're 20 years old again chronologically, but they're now an adult technically. They have access to the internet, and but they're in chat rooms with a number of 14-year-olds, 15, 16-year-olds. They're not doing it to be predatorial. They're doing it because they fit in better with that crowd because of their lower levels of social emotional maturity, which there has been unfortunately many, many situations where that goes down a very bad path that can lead them into kind of a dark world and criminal justice involvement. Educating caregivers about this topic is so important. And it's one of the biggest issues I'm, again, consistently seeing that absolutely contributes to vulnerability and victimization. And in the future, if you like, I think definitely doing a segment just on social media mm. strategies around this. But a couple basic things when we look again through this social lens, really looking at social lens. If your child or adult with FASD lacks stranger danger, has a real difficult time detecting stranger danger. They have a long history of befriending people they just met, and now they think that person's their best friend in the whole world. Be on the lookout for that. Mm -hmm. Do they have a tendency to have a real difficult time 
knowing how to select friends. Do they understand assertiveness versus aggressiveness? Do they understand healthy versus unhealthy relationships? Do they understand how to talk to a, an adult stranger differently than an adult who they've known their whole life? Teaching these things can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. On the lookout for naivete and gullibility, because if they have a higher level of gullibility and naivete, they're going to be much more likely to be scapegoated and manipulated and talked into doing things that may not have their best intentions in mind. One of our previous segments we did did together, I talked about sexually inappropriate behaviors. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an issue for some individuals, and it's another issue that gets even more complex when we're talking about online technology use habits. Is that person starting to engage in inappropriate sexual behavior, inappropriate talk? Is there a history of starting to look at pornography? All of those factors can open up a door to a very dark world as well. I mentioned perspective taking and theory of mind, really helping the individual develop perspective taking abilities. And being online, there's a lot of great benefits of it as well. But if you have someone with FASD who has a really difficult time interpreting facial expressions, body language, facial cues, that's just another complexity that we need to take into account. Enough people I've talked to too about the social media world. And if they're raising a child or an adult who has a neurodevelopmental disorder, not just FASD in general, but autism, ADHD, intellectual developmental disability, a lot of those caregivers and professionals say that that person just really thrives and feels a lot more comfortable in the online world as well. Yeah. Don't, it's hard to say, we don't want to take it away completely, but boundaries, fences, maybe it's joining a, a support group online with people who are safe and the caregivers can check up and see how things are going and really monitor where that person is going online. You have to individualize it to your family, household rules, but really encourage you to learn about these problems because what COVID has taught us, these issues are only amplified and they were here before COVID, but it's really, COVID has really brought it to the surface for a lot of families, at least the families I've consulted with. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. And I think what, what's at the core of, of everything that, that you've shared there in, in terms of advice is to truly know and have um, quite open communication with with your child, um, with or, or adult child, but, you know, wherever, um, wherever they are, but, but however that looks like for you as well, and making sure that that pathway of communication is, is open enough for them to feel comfortable and for you to be able to ask questions about their online activity and who they're talking to. Because again, if those conversations are stressful, then we come back to false confessions that we've spoken about previously and, um, you know, things can escalate very quickly. And things, as you said, things can be very, very easily taken out of context online. And so having that, that level of understanding to be able to support your child is going to be really important but also I just want to acknowledge as well how time consuming and how energy consuming that would be for a caregiver too to be constantly monitoring that but without 
having a presence of monitoring and being able to, to monitor from a distance. And as you said, um, mirroring good behavior in, in terms of technology use and screen time is increasingly difficult. And as you say, COVID has made it even more difficult because if you're encouraging a child who's, who's still of school age to spend less time online, but school is now online or partly online and the only way that they can meet with their friends is online because there's some level of, of lockdown or whatever's going on. Um, all of these things, but then you yourself as the parent, as the caregiver, you're working online. And because we've all moved to this online space in the last couple of years, I think we have a tendency, we, we don't have that nine to five. We don't have that moment where everybody says, okay, it's five o'clock, let's all get up. We put our coats on together. We leave the office, we turn off the lights, we lock the door and we wave goodbye as we walk to our cars. That doesn't happen anymore. So emails are coming in. Are your emails attached to your phone? That then means that you're not on social media. You have quite important things to be doing, but you're not displaying a healthy relationship with technology that you want your child to be mirroring when they are so vulnerable in their own usage. And just thinking about things like um, smartwatches and things, you know, even you're having dinner and you said no technology, technology ban, but an email comes through on your watch. It's, you know, it, it, it's so ingrained and I, I do, I, I really want to acknowledge the challenge there for caregivers to be able to, you know, present that, that healthy relationship with technology if they have uh, a child who they know is, is vulnerable in that online space. I can't imagine. I, I don't raise a child with FASD. I, I commend all of you. It, it a lot of complexities. A couple of things I've heard, a couple other tips I've heard just from caregivers along the way is some caregivers have had like a technology use basket and they set it in the entryway. So when the kids come over, the friends of the child come in, everyone puts their gadget in that basket. So mm -hmm. you keep it in one spot and mm -hmm. they don't have free reign to it in their room. And so that has been helpful. The research is very clear on this too. Families who sit down and have consistent meals together, especially without technology present, better outcomes can happen. Yeah. This is just families in general. You brought up the topic of time. I've consulted with enough people now. This time thing is a huge issue. Mm -hmm. A couple cases I've consulted on recently, the person said, time just, I get lost in time. I, I, five hours later, I thought I was only on there for an hour. Yeah. So it's important for caregivers to define time because time can be an abstract concept. Define what the beginning is, the middle, the end giving transition periods too, like stopping at cold turkey coming up, hey, you're time to get off. That has resulted in blow ups, transition time, allow some transition time, having a stopwatch or a timer, something, getting technology off as much as possible in the evening hours, because looking at that technology late into the evening, mm -hmm. it really throw off sleep. So those are just a few tips and any type of intervention you're teaching to help a child get off of technology. 
making sure you are using visuals, it's concrete, it's taking in their abstract reasoning and the executive function. So really teaching it through a lens of executive functioning and abstract reasoning would be very helpful. So maybe it's consulting with someone who understands those topics or hiring like an executive functioning coach to teach specific tasks could be a beneficial like option for caregivers to investigate. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It is, it's, um, it's very, very complex and it does tie in so much to technology use and you know, the, the use of technology is something that, um, that I'm very, very aware of myself and is something that I, uh, I don't want my daughter to grow up thinking that I'm glued to my phone or my laptop. I don't want her seeing a screen in my face all the time. But she, she knows at seven months old, she knows that this thing is important. She knows she will dig it out if it's on her playmat and all her toys are on top of it and I've forgotten about it. She knows. And it, what I'm using it for is completely irrelevant to her. Obviously, she's a baby. You know, it doesn't matter if I'm scrolling Twitter or trying to take some cute photos of her. See, for me, I can justify my technology usage if I'm taking cute photos. Where I feel guilty is if I'm scrolling through Twitter and not giving her my attention. So that's that's what I try not to do. But she, you know, already at that very, very young age, and I'm very mindful of my technology usage, she still knows. So that, you know, the, the, the concept of having that technology basket at the front door, like, almost makes me feel a little bit uneasy to think of putting my device in a basket at the front door in order to, to present that as something acceptable if I were to have a child that also, you know, required that level of, of fencing and protection. You know, and I went to, I was in India for about five weeks in 2019 and the internet access is terrible. It was awful. And you know, we were quite remote. We weren't in a big city or anything. and. Honestly, the, the internet access, it was like being in the early 2000s again. It would take forever to connect. You would barely get a message through. Video calling was out of the question, just not happening at all. And that was so uncomfortable for the first week, two weeks that we were there to have that sudden disconnect. And I didn't need to do anything. I didn't need access to the internet for work. I could send a message to my family to let them know I was okay. But just not being able to have that was suddenly... It's tough. Very tough. When I... A lot of my work, I have to be on the computer and doing yeah. things like this. But if I know I'm taking off a day or two of work and I don't have any access to the technology, that first day is real tough. That second day, I feel way more alert, way more energetic. It's amazing how quickly you start feeling better. But that first day, at least for me, it, it is tricky and it feels like you're almost going through withdrawals or something. And yeah, yeah it, it's a real thing. Yeah. There's a lot of research on this and I, it's tough now because the children born now will not ever know a life without technology. 
kids who are glued to the television and gadgets early on in life, the research says it's not a good thing. Moderation, of course, especially at night. So just take that with a grain of salt. Everyone has a different kind of mindset on this, different family rules. But in general, the research is pretty clear. Excessive amounts of screen time, whatever kind of screen time it is, has negative impacts on mood, cognition or brain, and our physical health and learning and attention. Kids transitioning into school, if they had a long history of being on their gadgets for many, 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 many hours a day, research also shows that they may have more of a difficult time transitioning into mm -hmm. kindergarten, first grade, second grade, and beyond too. Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, so that's that's really important as well because I'm presuming that, that that research is carrying out with just a a neurotypical population and, and not specific to FASD where a lot of these will be amplified and um, much more challenges, particularly around um, vulnerability, will be will be raised as a result of this relationship with technology. So it really is, it's, it's fascinating. And, and as you said before, the, the relationship with social media is a whole nother can of worms to be addressed um, at another time because that's yeah, I'm sure it's at the forefront of a lot of families' uh, challenges day to day. But uh... it's a real issue. And again, I'll leave your audience to with this. When we're looking at it through a vulnerability lens, all the core deficits of FASD need to be factored in, but also being aware of some of those secondary challenges, sleep issues, fatigue being aware of that person's level of comprehension abilities. Do they have a tendency to have very lower levels of decision-making, problem-solving? Mm -hmm. I'm doing more work in the area of um, humor processing and humor deficits too. I'm putting together a training for an organization on that very topic. And very important too to understand, does this population understand the use of appropriate humor? And that can be a factor. Mm -hmm. especially in the online world. And then, as we've mentioned in other segments, suggestibility. If that person is more suggestible, there's a higher likelihood that they may be more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Do they have a long history of being gullible? But there's something also called fragility that I haven't really talked about much. Not a lot of research on something called fragility. It's C-R-E-D-U-L-I-T-Y. If you study suggestibility, you study gullibility, naivete, you, you got to understand fragility as well. There's a, some articles that come out of the world on intellectual and developmental disabilities, but this is really when someone has a really willingness to believe or trust too easily, where they'll almost believe anything. Oh, wow. And it is related to gullibility and naivete, but if that person just never is skeptical and believes everything on face value, and they just easily talked into doing things. Crudility would be another topic for your audience to at least have maybe just a basic understanding on. That's, uh, that's really interesting. That's the term that I've never heard either. I, I don't believe that I've heard. So, um, and something that I can imagine is is quite relevant to the, the FASD community. Yeah. yeah, so, oh, that's really interesting. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, cool. yeah and, and thank you for this 
another really, really interesting conversation. Again, lots and lots to think about and in process. Um, as always, if anybody has any questions, please do feel free to get in touch. Because, uh, we will always do what we can um, to help. And uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you very much, Jared, and thank you again for joining us and for everybody listening as well. Thank you again very much. Reach out anytime if you have questions about these topics. I'll get back to you. Thank you. Take care.